say in different words something I think I've said before, perhaps in a few on a few different occasions. Uh, it's important, I feel, uh, to question and to be mindful and to be on the lookout for uh, our own shadow uh, as we proceed on our path. Um, it's very easy to look at someone else's path, some other tradition, etc., and see their shadow, their weak spots, their unexamined areas, their blind spots, uh, their out of uh, places where they're out of balance, etc. Um, more relevant, more important is to look at our own shadow, um, the shadows of our own tradition and our own trajectory and our own path making. Uh, and I'm using the word shadow here probably in a slightly different way than you might um, have grown accustomed to it. Um, in, I'm using it in the sense that any time we throw light on something, any time any um, object or event or thing is illuminated by a light, by consciousness, by exploration, so any time a light it illuminates something, uh, that thing, or that whole process of the light and the thing, uh, casts a shadow. Yeah, so any time, and, and to, to open something up to questioning is to illuminate it, to bring consciousness to bear, to look at it, etc., from different perspectives, and uh, all, all this uh, creates shadow. You understand? So shadow is not, um, you know, the places just rejected by trauma or, or something in the psyche. It's actually what happens any time consciousness uh, comes, brings itself to bear, so to speak, or is put in relationship with anything. Light and an object causes a shadow. Yeah, if you think just about the, the physics of it. In other words, insights illuminate, but they also cast a shadow. The shadow of insight. Each insight, each perspective that insight brings, or each insight that is a perspective, casts a particular shadow, or a shadow in a particular direction, has a, uh, a, a way of shadowing in, the, in a corresponding direction to the insight. You know, so imagine, here's the light of insight shining from a particular direction on an object, uh, a stone, a tree, an animal. And there's then a shadow behind that uh, stone, tree, animal, in relationship to where the light is coming from, right? It's just how light and shadow works. It's similar with insight. We talk about the shadow of particular perspectives or the shadow of the shadows of particular insights. So the, the whole Four Noble Truths is a, is a kind of insight system, it's a perspective, it's, it's a, 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 a set of insights, if you like, and it casts uh, a lot of light, a lot of illumination, but it has a shadow to it, or shadows to it, blind spots. Things that by virtue of that uh, very light that's shining from a certain direction are then cast into darkness.
the whole movement of the, or just uh, the, the, the insight of not self, no self. Fantastic insight, really liberating, will cast a particular kind of shadow in relationship to the self. Or uh, the, the movement of renunciation. Or the whole uh, movement to simplify can be so helpful to simplify. Just regards just papancha, proliferation, let go, and brings a certain blindness, certain blind spots in a certain corresponding or, uh, if you like, uh, corollary or opposite direction. What's the shadow of simplism? What's the shadow of the teachings of no self? What's even the shadow of the four noble truths? This is important. So I mean it in that sense, in in a very kind of wide sense. Uh, And so for me, wherever we are, whatever we're opening up, whatever we're exploring, however we're moving, there's this possibility of shadow, uh, shadows, and and there's a there's an ongoing kind of exploration there. It won't ever end. We don't ever get to the end of shadow, so to speak. Uh, It's created (coughs) by the very process of consciousness itself. (coughs) Um, Excuse me. And um, uh, so this is important important to know and important to include in, in, in our ongoing journey. So in relation to what we just finished, the last part of the talk, uh, uh, um, elaborating on and describing, you know, this emergence of sexuality as a sort of area of delineation that then became interesting and became filled out and became complicated and added a new complexity to the the self and the notion and the felt sense of self and that whole movement historical movement of that which Foucault was tracing and we were we were talking about in different ways and elaborating on um, adding to what he said and um, we said this is this proliferation of delineation this increase in complexity increase in the psychic interiority of the self and the whole sense of what the self is that that proliferation is a double-edged sword we said and we have to be careful with that. We can see that it is a movement of soul-making, a movement of this expansion, widening, deepening, complicating, enriching, that eros, psyche, logos, um, that the dynamic of soul-making uh, and those three facets kind of do to each other or involve each other in. And it can also be a snag, a snare, a trap, uh, a, a net of entanglement for ego. Uh, so it's a double-edged sword. Now in terms of shadow, what I mean is that it it may be easy to look at all this and kind of just look at it from what we could call uh, the perspective of a kind of lazy Buddha Dharma, the response of a lazy Buddha Dharma, and sit here and just kind of in a very relaxed way, very almost lazy and sloppy, say, proliferation, you see, that's papancha, that's exactly the translation of papancha, um, self, uh, um, proliferation, sex, these things bring dukkha, they only bring dukkha. Um, let go, let go, be simple, let go of all this business about self, let go of all these delineations, let go of all this um, 
exploration of the complexities of sexuality and all that. Let go, be simple. So shrug it off. Uh, and and basically there is this shrugging off and um, the seduction there of the simplism, the seduction of the promise of, of peace, um, but the seduction also of simplicity. Um, and and really the, the encouragement is not to engage. Don't engage with the, the process of soul-making and the complexities of soul-making, which will involve a rub, which will sometimes involve a, ruptur- a rupturing of vessels, as we've said, the breaking of the vessels, which will involve friction and heat and confusion at times, and expansion and stretching of the soul, of the vision, of the concept, etc., so uh, one of the one of the shadows of Buddha Dharma, and 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 it's almost you know um, comes with the package of the four noble truths, and the kind of what I was referring to as the medical model and this emphasis on peace and let go, etc. Um, so it, it's a it's a treasure, but it comes with a shadow, and part especially nowadays part of that shadow is this what I call simplism and the seduction of simplism. And a kind of non-engagement. What will happen if we if we adopt that approach? If we sit back in that kind of um, lazy posture, there, what I'm calling a lazy Buddha Dharma, then there will not be, there cannot be the soul making with respect to self and individuality, and is there and personhood and persona and these things that we've touched on in the past. Um, self as a whole, direction, avenue, doorway, uh, movement uh, and manifestation of soul-making just cannot uh, happen. Um, nor sex, nor sexuality. Why? Because we've just gone back to the simplism and shrugging it off and calling it all just papancha proliferation and just self equals a bad word. Didn't the Buddha say there's no self, etc.? And in that, one is not recognizing, if one adopts such a posture, one is not recognizing uh, something we touched on right at the beginning of the retreat and we spent a long lot of time um, expanding, elaborating on that, is the soul-making process, the soul-making dynamic, the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, involves and works by, in part, works by making delineations. Delineations become clear to the perception of the sensitive soul, of the sensibility that is refined through eros, through interest, through arousal, etc., through contact and desiring more contact. Emotional sensitivity, perceptual sensitivity, sensual sensitivity, um, mental sensitivities and delineations of the of the concepts, etc., um, we can call it papancha and proliferation, and yes, it, there's all kinds of dangers involved in it, as we're pointing out, but it is also intrinsic, um, for the most part, for the most part, to the soul-making dynamic. And even when one moves, I can't remember if I said this, but even when one moves towards the simplifying of less fabrication, states of oneness and jhana, etc., and 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 uh, moves on that trajectory of lessening fabrication towards the unfabrication, 
towards the unfabricated, there is still a very subtle and important delineation-making going on, according to what? According to the Four Noble Truths. Uh, Where's the suffering? Where's the release from suffering? What is involved in supporting suffering, and what we're calling clinging, and everything, all the subtlety of what's involved in clinging, and letting go of, of that. All these subtle delineations are involved in that particular movement of soul-making towards the unfabricated, towards the different levels of oneness, etc. But generally speaking, adopting that as a kind of lazy Buddha Dharma posture um, or, or stance uh, in response to all this and the complexity and the demands, really, of all that, what, what the soul is being called to, what the soul is calling us to in relationship with sexuality, in relationship with sensuality and body, and, and also in relationship with self, Self-notions, self-constructs, self-views, self-images. To adopt that lazy posture would be not not to recognize the intrinsicness of delineation, not to rise to that challenge, not to meet it, not to open it, not to be bothered, really. So the soul-making dynamic we need to rise involves delineation-making all kinds and more subtle and more complex delineation making, not as some kind of um, sort of anally retentive um, accountant uh, categorization process and boxing everything into neat boxes and uh, being too picky about that, but it includes that. And the soul-making process will include and will affect the sense of self, the view of self, the idea, the concept of self. The sense of other, the view of other, the idea and the concept of other, and of eros. So all this, it, 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 it's included. We can, we can, you know, shrug it off, try and be simple, etc. Decide not to engage, criticize it with certain dharma by labeling it with dharma concepts of papancha and self, etc defilement and all that but the soul making process will involve delineations and will include and affect uh, how we view, sense and think of self, other and eros and eros, which means sexuality as well as a, as a part of eros as a dimension or a strand of eros you know in recent years there's um, a growing movement uh, of opening up uh, and making more visible and, and opening up for discussion uh, uh, and uh, questioning uh, not just uh, the possibility of sexual orientation and the definitions according and what's allowable um, in terms of sexual orientation but also in terms of gender definitions and delineations and a kind of um, refusal to be limited by the sort of um, uh, two possibilities given to us, male or female, that are, are uh, handed to us, if you like, seemingly, obviously. Um, uh, so there's a possibility of um, being polygendered, if you like, or both, or neither, or something completely different. Um, this whole... Um, movement of opening those discourses up around sexual orientation, around gender, 
delineations and definitions, identities, etc. Opening it up, questioning, um, talking about, and refusing to be uh, uh, nailed into just two delineations there. Um, I wonder whether that whole movement of opening that's happening um, more and more, I think, in in recent years, if that could also be seen as a soul-making movement. It's the movement of Eurosychologus doing exactly what it tends to do. Um, and that can be an individual movement, of course, for the individual in relationship to those um, those areas and those delineations. The soul-making comes into contact with them, and it doesn't fit. It wants more. The vessels need to be broken. Um, and it can also be a, a cultural movement. So soul-making can happen on a cultural level as well. Um, so I'm, I wonder about that's one way of seeing what's going on there. I mean, quite aside from all the sort of political um, issues there, there could be really uh, at heart there a soul-making movement happening. And you know, um, in imagine work, repeating now what I've said before, in um, if I'm open to the imaginal, and the mundus imaginal is the, the imaginal realm, if I open to receiving that and letting it lead me and just not constraining it, and, and um, you know, the whole restriction of gender there, it just doesn't apply. So um, one may be the, the gender that one typically thinks oneself of, or, or the opposite gender, if there, if you can even think of opposites, that's a, would be to reduce it to the whole male-female on, only double possibility there. Um, one could be um, hermaphrodite, one could be n- no-gendered, uh, whatever. Um, one isn't even constrained there to biological, um, uh, you know, physical actualities. Um, uh, one may be uh, the imaginal eroticism that one's witnessing or being part of is heterosexual, homoerotic, whatever, may not even involve um, uh, human beings or partly human beings, whatever. Um, one, as I said before, might be penetrating or penetrated, and that may not correspond to um, biological actualities, etc., the, the imaginal realm is open that way, and sometimes, uh, you know, the, as I said before, with all imaginal practice, really, the question, one of the questions is, what wants to manifest um, in the actual life, in the lived life, um, and how, and how? So there's all these imaginal possibilities, and some may not need any... Um, manifestation or expression in the life and some need uh, some kind of manifestation which is not obviously related at first sight to the image and some need more uh, more obviously related manifestations. So the Eros-Psychologos dynamic, the soul-making dynamic, as we, as we mentioned right almost from the beginning, it will eventually uh, Open everything up, or rather, it will it will tend towards opening more and more up, more and more of our experience, more and more of the facets of being. That's its natural inclination because of the way it works.
And included in that, part of what it opens up is body. What the body is to us, what the body means to us, how the body appears to us, how we feel it, how we sense it, how we think about it, how we conceive of it. And this opening up of the body through the soul-making process is inevitable. It must be included. And the opening up happens in very obvious ways, and also in much less obvious ways. Um, So already we've um, touched on some of this, and already this is part of what we're kind of presenting here and teaching. Already, for instance, starting with what we we call the phenomenological approach, and just what is the actual experience of body, already this uh, leads us to the sense of what we're calling the energy body. Yes? So just adopting a phenomenological approach and backing off such a tight, rigid ideation about what body is according to um, whatever dogma we've been uh, indoctrinated with, whether that's um, modern secular materialism or scientific reductionism or something else or whatever, some other more religious view. Um, adopting the phenomenological approach, backing, just giving a bit more space in terms of our uh, the conceptual strangleholds there. And the, 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 what, uh, what begins to become clear to us is the sense of the energy body. And as we play with that perception, different ways of looking, play within our phenomenological approach with different ways of looking, and uh, tune in different ways and bring our sensitivity and our curiosity to this experience of the energy body, that the very range of experience of the energy body starts to open. So there is already, in that approach, and coming out of that very basic, simple approach, simple exploration, there is already an opening of what the body is to us, and what the experience and the idea of the body is. But then at some point, wrapped up uh, with that, or in addition to that, um, the body can also become image, let's say, um, so that we realize there are imaginal dimensions to our perception of the body. And this can happen uh, directly and indirectly. In other words, the body, our body, or the body of a lover, or the body of uh, someone uh, someone else, um, can be for us the, the erotic object included in their personhood or whatever, or just the body per se, um, mine, yours, whatever, the body as uh, erotically beloved other. Um, so in that way the body becomes, uh, it, it gains imaginal dimension uh, in, in the, percep- the perception of the body, gains imaginal dimensions directly through, its, uh, through the erotic relationship with, with the body. Or um, something else is the erotic beloved, um, and and uh, there's a spilling over, an expansion of the uh, soul-making uh, sensibilities and inclusion and involvement to include and involve the perception of the body. There's the part, perhaps, of the cosmopoesis. So we realize, as we do with all perception, that there is an imaginal, uh, imaginal. Um, Threads, imaginal uh, dimensions are involved in our perception of the world and of body and of everything. 
So we can talk about imaginal body, just as we can talk about imaginal earth. We can talk about the imaginal perception of body, the imaginal perception of earth. But whether directly or indirectly, the, the body in the soul-making, in being included, wrapped up in, drawn into, involved in the soul-making um, process, gestation, digestion, uh, uh, vortex, um, whirlwind, um, in being included in that, the body becomes more than it was yesterday, more than it was last year, more than it was to us before. The body becomes more like everything else that is included in the soul-making um, uh, process and gains dimensionality, and gains beauty, and gains sacredness, and all the rest of it, and multifacetedness, and facetedness, and complication, and all that. The body becomes more. It becomes alive in more and other ways than we tend to think of it in our usual uh, uh, culturally um, given and sanctioned way of thinking and looking at the body, that body is either alive or dead um, in, in a sort of obviously biological way, but it becomes alive in other ways, becomes more. It's given, as I said, dimensionality, uh, multifacetedness that it didn't have before. And and that moreness, or gaining more, or being given more, or more being discovered there in the body, happens in, in two ways I'd like to uh, delineate between. One is the body as object, yes, the object of uh, my sensing, my perception. Uh, the object of my vision, of my uh, touch sense, of my smell sense, uh, of my taste even, my uh, hearing, all that. Um, also the object of my thought and the object of my imaginal perception. All of that, and of course those three are inter interconnected. But the body as object becomes more, becomes alive more, is given dimensionality. And also the body as subject meaning the body as sort of um, place, a gathering place, if you like, or locus for ways of knowing. Subject is what knows. Yes, as opposed to object is what is known. Um, body as locus of ways of knowing. Um, and those ways of knowing, again, they're more, more than I knew yesterday. They may be new to me as an individual. This body, and through the body, uh, uh, through the soul-making process, through the erotic imaginal, ways of knowing are open to me, that opened to me um, in that process that I hadn't known before, that I, hadn't, I wasn't familiar with before. Or ways of knowing that are new to the culture. Yeah. So it, it, it might be that those ways of knowing were known to perhaps ancient cultures or certain uh, indigenous cultures in this this or that place in, in, in the world. Um, but they might be new to this culture, or they might be new to all cultures. But again, there is not this, because of the soul-making process, there's not this contraction of ways of knowing in some kind of dogma of only this way of knowing and that way of knowing are legitimate. Everything else is a delusion, a projection, a, a fantasy in the bad sense, a 
immature wish fulfillment, whatever confusion, uh, and, and ignorance, etc. There is not that epistemicide and epistemic cleansing that we said before. Rather, there is an opening of epistemic potential. But the body becomes more as both object of sense, thought, image, etc., and as object, as uh, if you like, locus of ways of knowing, potential ways of knowing. So we'll come back to this, but already, um, previously on this course and on other courses, you know, we've already um, presented things and tried to open up uh, the sense of the body and what the body is. For example, with the teachings on the energy body and our um, trying to stress and trying to insist on an inclusion of the whole spectrum of perceived substantiality of the body. In other words, if we talk about energy body, it can be extremely refined. Can be, it's almost like you could put your hand through the body, um, or uh, it's just light, or and sometimes even beyond that, it's just empty space, etc. Um, all the way down to really dense, uh, solid uh, perception of materiality. And we're saying all of that spectrum is included in, in what we're calling the energy body, for want of a better word. Sometimes I regret um, that that uh, those you know the way I, I name things. I feel like I could have could have chosen better words, but anyway, it's there now. Um, but including all of the spectrum there, uh, really getting familiarity with that whole range and everything in between. Sometimes this. Uh, encouragement to do that is a matter of kind of rebalancing where there's uh, too much tendency one way or another. Uh, For instance, occasionally there are people uh, who keep tending just towards the very sort of airy, more refined, less substantial sense of the body and would be good for them to uh, dwell a bit more, uh, have equal range and play in the more solid, more uh, kind of densely material, um, heavy, if you like, sense of the body. But uh, for me, the, the, the encouragement to have that whole spectrum there is really not only for the sake of so-called psychological health or psychological balance or whatever. Yes, that's important sometimes, but really for me the, most, the more important thing is for the soul-making. Because of what the Eros-Psychologos dynamic wants in its natural inclination to open in all directions and include everything that it can possibly come in contact with, it wants to have all that spectrum. It wants to inhabit and fill out and sacralize all that spectrum. Um, And (coughs) part of what it wants and what it achieves by doing that, and for me, part of the whole purpose of all this teaching and all this work is to widen our senses of the sacred and if you like of the divine, if you're okay with that language, widen our senses with the sacred of the sacred, so that the sacred is not just um, limited to the ethereal, the insubstantial, the the white light, uh, etc. Et it's also right there. The divinity is right there, as we've touched on before, in the uh, in in the density, in the solidity, in the so-called darkness of matter. So we can again look at different 
cultures, whether they're spiritual cultures or the wider culture, uh, wider Western modernist culture, and so what, what's the typical sort of leaning here? I mean, in the wider culture, it's certainly towards density. I mean, probably very few people in the wider culture have regular um, experience of a sort of light body um, or anything like that, and would probably get quite alarmed if suddenly they did have that. Um, uh, it's my guess. Um, conversely, there might be certain certain traditions of, of spiritual teaching and practice where they emphasize much more the light body and and almost putting down um, uh, the more dense experiences. <clears throat> but can there be what I think we're interested interested in is both both the dense ends and and the more refined, more insubstantial, more ethereal ends. Um, and everything in between uh, is open to be uh, filled with the uh, seen through the erotic imaginal, filled with soul and soul making, and thus sacralized. And is also just one is familiar with the, with those kind that whole range of experience. So we've talked about that in terms of opening up the body. We've all, We've already said this. We've also drawn attention to, and again, with the, with the way we're talking about the energy body, that the felt sense of the, the space that the body is, or occupies, um, is um, larger, potentially, phenomenologically, it's actually larger than what is obvious uh, to the visual eye, or what is obviously physically measurable. Yes, in other words, the sense of the energy body can extend either a little bit beyond um, beyond the visible, physically measurable uh, physical body, or actually quite a bit. You know, but um, the space of the body is also something, uh, or the perceived and conceived space of the body is also something that expand has. We have expanded in the way that we've been presenting these teachings. Soul making tends to include and involve more of the body space. Soul making, in its again, part of the whole eropsychologus tendency of expansion, isn't it? Yeah. But when there is a movement of soul making, when the soul making process, it will tend to expand, to include, to involve more of the uh, body space or the body space, the center of the body space, to have more area to it. And in fact, in our kind of definition, if you like, of what imaginal practice or mindfulness of images involves, if you remember, it involves, um, by definition, the whole attention to the whole energy body, mindfulness of the whole energy body. We're including that in what soul-making is, what imaginal practice is, in, in, in the way we're talking about it. And if it's not there, it's something that one can open towards or, or encourage or lean towards or support in order to kind of, um, let's say, support and, and uh, uh, give good ground to the soul-making process. So actually, by the way, in, con- in connection with that, if we refer back to what we were talking about yesterday with regard to soul-making in, in insects, whether it's actual sex or imaginal sex, um, what that then means is that um, if we want uh, to support a sex that's soul-making, sex that's soulful in our sense of the word, then uh, that soul-making needs um, that 
it needs for the uh, attention uh, not to contract to a small area. For example, the area of maximal pleasure, whether if that's the genitals or whatever it is. Um, because of what we just said, soul making tends to include more of the body space and, and expand that uh, to a, you know at least to a certain extent. Um, if we contract it, uh, the area of attention, let's say, just to the genitals or wherever there's sort of maximal sensual pleasure, um, which would be a typical uh, maybe movement of the attention, um, that's not going to support the soul making. It needs us not to contract that, or it's supported more by not contracting that, as well as, as we pointed out yesterday, not contracting into a kind of craving for pleasure or a craving for a uh, sort of, Michael, uh, uh, achieving a goal of orgasm or whatever it is. If there's contraction in those ways, then uh, their soul-making won't be supported so much, which means, in other words, that the um, imaginal perceptions um, of the whole experience and the imaginal dimensions that are um, discoverable or revealed in the revealable in the whole experience will be diminished. Whether that's of the other, of the beloved other, of the sexual partner, um, of of the Im- imaginal other, of the self in that moment, and also of the eros and the sexuality itself. If there's contraction, either of the area of the attention too much, or of or into a kind of goal, goal-driven sort of um, uh, contraction there, then the imagine, Im- imaginal perception, the imaginal dimensions of other self and eros are diminished, are contracted as well, are limited, not supported. Um, but returning to what we're talking about mostly today, you know, we've in terms of opening up uh, the body and what we've already touched on, we've already um, a little bit, I think, alluded to in different examples of the way that um, different organs of the body and different body parts can become ensouled. So, for example, the hands or the feet or the or the genitals or the intestines, um, uh, they are ensouled in the sense of given imaginal uh, dimensions, given imaginal beauty, imaginal place. Uh, They are seen and felt and sensed to reflect, to echo, to mirror, to express uh, not just the personal in the human level, but also the archetypal, the daimonic, um, the imaginal dimensions and and the imaginal figures expressed in and through the organs or body parts or the body parts expressing uh, being those things. And there's all kinds of possibilities here and I actually can't remember now what examples we've given um, over the different retreats. But um, really so many possibilities. So I think we talked about um, the, the possibility if you you know, massage someone's feet or someone or something when they're ill or an old person, and how those feet and those legs might take on whole other imaginal dimensions. Uh, for instance, they become Jesus's feet or connected somehow with Jesus's feet or something like that. And you know, quite a, that would be one example. Another um, a very very common one. Um, many of you will probably be familiar with this, I imagine, is just 
how sensitive the hands are, so how easy it is, um, uh, especially with with practice with the energy body, to feel um, uh, healing energy streaming from your hands or from the palms of your hands. How easy, um, or relatively easy, let's say, that that is, or uh, maybe relatively common. Um, So, you know, we could say that's an energetic perception. Of course it is. It's also an imaginal perception. They're they're both mixed there. And and, and it's a lovely, lovely thing to practice. Sometimes, you know, sitting with someone who's suffering in one way or another, and, and they don't even have to know, and one just turns the palm to them and uh, is, is, is a way of, of radiating healing, perhaps as they're talking, perhaps as you're sitting silently, perhaps as you're talking. And there's a whole other level of the interaction going on there um, that's um, bringing this, these imaginal dimensions and the blessings of, of healing and connecting bodies and all of that. So if you haven't played with that sort of thing, you know, it, it's really a, a lovely possibility, and I, I would encourage that. And of course, it could be from anywhere in the body, the whole body, or the heart center, or, or whatever. Um, and you know, so many possibilities here. You know, what about? Um, you know, we talked on the last retreat. I'm not sure how many people picked this up. It's part of the. Uh, what I was referring to as the the problem of inertia that we sometimes have as as human beings and as practitioners, but the possibility of actually moving in the meditation. Meditation doesn't have to be static. So either the physical body is moving, and it's visible to others, um, if others are there, or or um, well, the physical body is still still, but the energy in the imaginal body is moving, and one is really sensitive to the feeling of that. Um, but that and that might look like a kind of slow dance thing, or it could look like any, anything. Or one adopts certain postures that m- may not be typical postures because something is being expressed through the energy body and through the imaginal body. And what would it be, for instance, to um, to play with that kind of thing, a sensitivity to the whole energy body, and feel the whole body, and really attune to that, and... Um, feel the movement of the hands uh, and sense the movement of the hands as music. Again, there's a synesthesia that we refer to in uh, in the last retreat, in the, the retreat on the poetry of perception. I think music is a sound thing and hands just moving is a, uh, you know, a, a, a bodily kinesthetic sense um, and perhaps a visual sense as well. What is it for in the hands moving that they're somehow making music. Yeah, so maybe they want to move and the hands um, do a slow dance or a fast dance or whatever it is, and it's music. Um, and what is that music? Celestial music, divine music, the music of the deep body, the music of the earth, of the soil. Uh, all kinds of possibilities um, here for this expansion um, of, of the body in terms of its parts and its organs, etc. The expansion of our sense, our, our perception, our ideation of it. So, the images of the body, the psyche with respect to the body, and the ideas of the body, the logos of the body, open up 
in all this, in the soul-making process. But also the eros, the third of our little uh, trinity there. Um, also the eros of the body opens up. Now, this might mean for some people that there is more eros and more libido flowing through the whole system. Uh, the, the system is open to more eros. I mean, we can see that as a divine influx. One is open more to the divine influx of eros. One can just see it as the, the if you like, the mechanics of the inevitable mechanics of the soul-making process, as we said. As the eros stimulates and opens a psyche logos, then there is more the, the reciprocal stimulation of the eros, and so there is more eros. There's more attraction, there's more beauty, there's more divinity, there's more dimensionality, there's more yumminess, there's more sensitivity. All of that, and so there is more eros. So the eros that's running through the psyche and through the body is opened. And with that, the erotic sensibilities of the body are also opened. So the images of the body, the ideas of the body, and also the eros of the body and the erotic sensibilities of the body, all this is opened. And, you know, it's just one of the smallest examples of that, um, of, of one way this could happen, because it could happen in so many ways. Um, one of the ways the Eros uh, opens, if you like, and with that the perception of bodies opens. Um, I remember being at a course with one of my teachers, um, who is a monk um, in the States, and uh, I can't remember what we were was a half meditation, half study retreat, and I think we were talking, somehow we were talking about um, renunciation, and, and maybe it was the Satipatthana Sutta, I can't remember, we, he was talking about um, the uh, ways of, of contemplating the unattractiveness of the body and, and ways to let go of it, and I think he, we were looking at the passage from the Satipatthana Sutta on the unclean parts of the body, and we say how you can use that if you're, if you're bothered by um, sexual desire, etc., and uh, you can contemplate the unclean parts of the body, and that will, uh, you know, uh, dampen your your uh, your sexual fire there. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and, and someone in the group um, said, oh yeah, but I work as a nurse, and um, I do on the surgical team for transplants and you know when someone's waiting for like a liver transplant and we get the call that uh, you know someone's died in a road accident or whatever and they're a donor and the liver's on its way it's in the ambulance right now and it's like okay operation time um then we uh, you, you know there's this anticipation for this liver to come and it gets delivered in this blood bath, it's literally in, in, a, in a sort of basin, um, soaked in blood because it needs to be in the blood. And something which um, would, to, to most perception, uh, in terms of what the teacher was saying, that'd be absolutely disgusting, a, li- a, a liver um, soaking in blood, um, raw liver soaking in blood. Um, it actually says it looks beautiful. It looks, um, you know, this is going to save a life, and there's a real beauty and the kind of sense of the miracle of it, etc. So there was an acknowledgement and and um, very very good teacher um, acknowledging, yes, dependent on the way of looking. Uh, he didn't use that language, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'd like to think that was that was acknowledged. There. Um, it was a long time ago, but but anyway, there's the dependency on the way of looking. Um, 
But we've given examples too of the erotic imaginal and this sense of feasting on the flesh and feasting on the organs and, and, and drinking the blood, um, etc., of, of uh, the erotic beloved. Um, in that sense, the erotic relationship with the body um, has gone far beyond this sort of clean and unclean parts and yucky and, and just this, you know, what often teaching sales. Oh, it's all very nice on the surface, but if you really saw the inside, you wouldn't like it. Um, it's gone way beyond that. There is this expansion of the eros, um, in the eros moving through moving through the perception, moving through the body, and also in the ways that it perceives the body as um, attractive and what it is. And, you know, like I said, I think when we were giving those examples, you know, there's no danger here of actually becoming, uh, you know, a cannibal or something like that. We're really... Um, talking about something that's very respectful, very beautiful, very um, loving, um, strange as that might sound to some people, um, imbued with holiness, but a lustful holiness, a lusty holiness, a, a, an erotic, a full-blooded erotic holiness with much more range to it. That's just one small example um, uh, many, many ways there. Uh, so in other words, um, yes, uh, there's this contemplation of the unclean parts, and usually we think of, yeah, it's all very nice on the surface, but uh, when you, you'd be pretty put off um, in terms of the eros that you feel towards someone and their body, um, if you could see inside, and then the nurse was saying, well, actually, it's not that simple, um, and that was acknowledged, and then we're adding a whole other level to that as well. There's so many possibilities here. So many. I'm, I'm aware of painting in quite broad brushstrokes the whole movement here, but there's so many, um, so many possibilities. Freud, in uh, at one point um, in his theorizing, um, said that the human infant is um, characterized by polymorphous perversity. It's a great sounding phrase. Polymorphous perversity. The human infant is polymorphously perverse. Part of what that means is that the whole body of the infant is erotically sensitive. Um, the whole body is, if you like, an erogenous zone, and the infant n naturally will be inclined, um, perhaps at different stages and all that, um, to seek to gratify its eros, in, in his view, its desire for sense pleasure, um, through the different parts of the body, the whole body, in all kinds of ways there. And so there is the necessity of training by the parents or the um, uh, nanny or whatever it was uh, back in those times, training um, the infant and then kind of internalizing through that training um, and through what Freud called the superego, the sort of, um, what's it called, like almost like moral supervisor, if you like, um, uh, in relationship with the ego, um, the training and the superego, ego dynamic, um, lead to a kind of contracting or shrinking of that polymorphous perversity, um, that sort of unrestrained and all-inclusive um, eroticism. Uh, it's contracted through the 
training of uh, the, the upbringing and through the structure, the psychic structure of the superego contracted psychically, uh, perhaps um, squashed down into the so-called unconscious. Um, and also physically in terms of there's a shrinking of the um, of the ways the body feels eros uh, most easily and uh, what's available there in terms of the way that eros moves in and through the body, where and how, etc. Now Freud, uh, you can hear in the very in the very language that he used, polymorphs perversity. Perversity implies something bad, twisted. Um, abnormal, negative, problematic, all that. But Freud, um, in his view of human nature, regarded this is really necessary. So we are basically wild animals. Uh, he was you know, following on from Darwin and all that. We're basically wild animals um, with massive instinctual force that, uh, that needs to be um, tamed, controlled by the strictures and the structures of civilization and... Um, upbringing and, and all that, and even the, the structures and dynamics of the psyche internally. So polymorphous perversity uh, was part of the, the sort of Freudian um, theoretical legacy there. And now we're saying, now we're saying, soul-making will open everything. The eros psyche logos will open everything, including the body, including the eros, in all kinds of ways. So, we might say, in its opening up of the body and of the eros and of the sexuality, etc., um, what it kind of um, supports and opens, we might say, is a, a polymorphous erotic soul-making, a polymorphously erotic soul-making. Uh, and a polyvalently erotic soul-making. Polymorphous may mean um, it can change and um, uh, can manifest this way and manifest that way. Polyvalently might mean um, it can uh, be situated here or there, the, the eros, the, the arousal, the erotic connection, and in all kinds of... Uh, uh, yeah, locations, if you like, um, physically and psychically. So, rather than polymorphous perversity, we're saying that that is something that is there intrinsically and then gets needs to get squashed down. We're kind of, you could say, what we're what we're suggesting is quite the reverse: that the the soul making process, the expansion, enrichment, complication, etc., etc., of eros which we keep going on about. Um, actually begins to open um, the erotic soul-making of the body and of the psyche, and so that there is this, what we're calling, might call, if we just play with the language, polymorphously and polyvalently erotic soul-making. Meaning that the whole sense of eros and the body as a, a location and a vessel uh, and, a, and a point of contact of the eros um, and an object and a subject of the eros that becomes multifaceted and multidimensional and multi um, uh, delineated in different way in 
different ways. In other words, the body presents, and the, ero, and the eros of the body uh, grows new facets, grows new ways, things that we hadn't even thought of before, things that hadn't, hadn't even been sensitive to before. Facets, dimensions, delineations, again, going back to what we said before, delineations get made. Um, uh, because the eros psyche logos dynamic inevitably will include the body. It has to include the body at some point. And it will it do it more and more. It's an increase uh, in the facets, a multifacetedness, a multidimensionality, an increase in the delineation, a, a, a kind of polyerotic, erotic, uh, polydirectionality of the eros. Uh, um, increase in the modes uh, and the surfaces and the the subjects, if you like, of the eros within one body and the directions. Again, as I said, I'm aware of painting in broad brushstrokes, but just to give you a sense of uh, the, the principle involved here, I think, is the most important thing. Now, if we've said, as, as we've said before, there's potentially, in the way that we're conceiving of all this, there's potentially or theoretically no limit to the soul-making process, to the, to the dynamic of Eros Psyche Logos and the way that expands, deepens, widens, etc. What that implies, if there's no limit to the soul-making process, it implies there's no limit to the ways um, the sense of the body can open. Do you understand? If the body is included in the, in the soul-making process and gets, gets uh, involved in that, then there's no limit to the ways the sense of the body can open because there's no limit to soul-making. Which means that the images, perceptions, ideas, understandings and experiences of the body, no limit to the way all that can open. The images, perceptions, ideas understandings and experience of the body. There's no limit to the way that can open. But also, um, no limit to the way uh, the sense of the body, as I said, as um, as a, a site for myriad and diverse ways of knowing, ways of perceiving. That's also potentially infinite in the ways that it can open. The body as a site for myriad and diverse ways of knowing and ways of perceiving. And again, we've touched on, um, uh, for instance, um, my friend saying she, she, she senses with her ovaries or her ovaries have intelligence or knowing uh, knowledge coming through through the imaginal tongue. Well, all kinds of possibilities here. And if it's potentially infinite there, the way that the body can open up um, as a locus, as a site for myriad and diverse ways of knowing and perceiving, we can't know, I can't know, I don't know what the future holds, what ways of knowing might open up for me, for you, for humanity. Because it's infinite, because the soul-making uh, process will, will make delineations that don't even occur to me right now, or you, or us. We'll gather sensitivities, we'll, we'll uh, open up uh, 
visions and senses and knowings there. No limit to the ways the sense of the body can open, potentially, because there's no limit to soul-making. Included in that is a, is a kind of um, uh, statement, if you like, about the, the logos of the body. In other words, the conception we have of the body. Because so often we consider um, uh, the body and the mind or the body and the soul are different things. Um, but as as the soul-making dynamic opens up more and more, what it does is it opens up different views, different potential views. If we go right back to the beginning of what we were saying, what that eventually means in the way that we're trying to present things and open things up is that then there's this potential to move in and out of different views, to entertain different views. So the statement that the body is not the soul, or the body has no soul, uh, is just one view. Yeah, I can enter into that, can see that way, can sense that way, can think that way. Sure. But it's only one view, and there are other views. If by soul we mean, uh, if we go back again to the beginning and the kind of glossary thing we were doing, soul is, we could say, that which knows and senses soulfully. That which knows, sees, and senses soulfully. So the body doesn't have that. Um, or one goes to a purely material view of like uh, there is no soul and it's just uh, um, there's just matter and it happens to if you connect things the right way chemically you kind of get consciousness and thought and stuff and then uh, that's just another view. So, with the soul-making, and with the uh, reflection, and the intelligence, and the un- understanding there, um, we have the capacity to entertain different views, and that comes more at the range of views that we can entertain, range of concepts, and conceptual frameworks uh, that we can entertain, sort of plug in, um, expand with the soul-making, with the practice. And we're not believing in um, one... Um, a single or ultimate truth um, or reality. This is how things are. This is how the body is. This is what matter is. So there's something here about the very idea, the very logos of body. But there's also something here about the body, if you like, uh, as logos, meaning... um, the body as a structure or structures of knowing, if you like, um, and and the expansion of that um, uh, beyond just the sort of five senses that are given to us by con- uh, contemporary psychology. The Buddha had six, but actually there's systems that have seven or eight or nine, and sometimes I've heard up, up to twelve. Um, so the body as... Uh, as logos, as 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 a, a, a kind of um, locus, if you like, of structures of knowing, um, more than the ones that we are just given by a sort of um, current neurophysiological science or, or or whatever. So the body, as if you like, a womb 
of epistemic structures, a womb of modes of knowing. As the soul-making uh, process, as the eros-psychologos dynamic meets and subsumes uh, matter, flesh, body, then there is this womb, this potential. Uh, the body is, we, we see that it's a kind of a, a womb or, or an area of potentiality, if you like, of epistemic structures, of way, possible modes of knowing. They can emerge, they can be born out of that. That's what the body is as subject, if you like. And with the um, whole imbuing uh, or filling out of the sense of the body imaginally, the imaginal perception of the body, and that sensitivity there and the beauty of that, you know, the the body, the sense of the body, the perception of the body can become uh, greatly expanded in all kinds of ways, alive and multidimensional in all kinds of ways. It can become, this body It can become a landscape, a soulscape that is alive with its own intelligence, with its own will, with its own soul, if you like. Body as soulscape that we can enter into. The multidimensionality of that. Very different way of perceiving and conceiving of body. For some, that might be already the experience and already quite obvious. Body has its own intelligence. Again, I don't just mean how clever it is that the blood can transport, um, you know, um, the uh, Im- Im- you know, uh, Im- immune factors to a site of a wound or whatever it is. I don't mean just a kind of metaphor of intelligence there for something that's actually quite blind and dumb, a process that's just evolved um, through the um, kind of forces of a dumb, blind, natural evolution, survival of the fittest. I mean intelligence, with different kinds of intelligence. And I mean soul, and I mean will and desire. So for some that's already obvious and already part of the experience, and for others it might sound this is a completely preposterous idea, and it's it's really in terms of actually um, being able to perceive such a uh, a body that the body that way, or with one's own or someone else's, very very distant as a possibility for some people. Um, in a way, it doesn't matter e- either way. Um, what matters really is is what's the next step for the soul making. Like with the intelligence of the movement of soul-making, where does it want to go next? And, and is there a block there? So we can ask that for the individual. Where does the soul-making want to go next? What does it want to do if, if it's with the body right now? What's, what's the next um, opening uh, uh, um, for that individual, for any individual, me or you or whoever? Do I need to stay with a certain opening for a while, get used to that, before something else starts pressing and insisting on opening? And to say, what am I, what's, what am I blocking? What, what's being blocked and how? Through the image, through the logos, whatever. The, the block of the eros. Uh, so we can ask it individually, but also culturally. What is the next step? What is the next step for the soul-making? 
Where does it want to move? What does it want to expand? What does it want to enrich, widen, deepen, complicate? So in, in, with regard to the body then, the body becomes, if you like, infinite. Or the body, if you say, we could say is infinite. But by that I don't mean spatially infinite. And neither do I mean the body is infinite in the sense of being interconnected with all things, the butterfly wings in China uh, and, and, and affecting the breeze and, and whatnot, or breathing in the air that, um, that the Buddha breathed on his first sermon or whatever. I don't mean infinite in that sense, interconnected with all things. I don't mean spatially infinite. I don't mean the being infinite awareness or infinite love or whatever it is in essence that the body is that. I mean infinite more in the sense of endlessly revealing, endlessly opening up um, for discovery, for creation, creation discovery, uh, n- new facets, other facets, uh, dimensions, aspects, body as endlessly revealing as infinite in that sense. So, really, we're interested in what the body becomes, what it becomes through the soul-making process. Also, of course, what the self becomes, what the other, what others become, what what the, the sense of a human being becomes, what animals become, what plants, what cos, what the cosmos becomes through the soul-making process and can become, what matter becomes, what divinity becomes through the Eros Psychologos dynamic, what it becomes to us, to our experience, to our perception, to our conception. And that's a different question than what it is, interested in what the body is, which which presumes more of a realist notion. It is this. And I'm going to discover or prove to you or insist on my version of what it is. In terms of the energy body, you get different systems. There's these chakras, and they're placed here. And then another system, and some other tradition will say, no, 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 there's these many chakras, and they're placed here, and they're this color, not that color, and etc. Well, these are the channels that flow, the energy channels through the body, through the body not those channels. Or someone insisting on, again, the, the sort of scientific reductionist, classical scientific reductionist view of matter, this one-dimensionality, that's the reality. Or even uh, what's quite popular in some modern, uh, more modern ways of thinking is kind of systems theory. The body as a system. So it's not reduced to a sort of basic element there, but it's a system. It's, it's still uh, a kind of um, uh, li- limitation there, an insistence on... Uh, reality and a kind of reductionism, even as much as systems theorists protest that they're not reducing, there's still a kind of reduction to physicalism there. But we're interested, I'm interested in what the body becomes, what the body can become to us, just as I'm interested in what the self can become what the other can become, what a human being, what animals, what the cosmos, what the matter, what matter can become, what divinity can become, what nature can become. Becoming, uh, if we talk about the body, what it becomes 
um, as a felt field of experience, again, that whole range, what it can become as imaginal object and imaginal subject, what it becomes as object and subject, as l- and what it can become as uh, a locus, a field, a womb of ways of knowing. How can the body be experienced in perception as an object and as a subject in its epistemic potentials, with its epistemic potentials? And again, for me, the interest here is not not even primarily, certainly not only, but not even primarily for the sake of psychological health or balance. But the interest is in what does the soul-making want? What, what does the eros want? And to me that's interesting individually and culturally, both. Uh, and one of the movements there is um, not a movement out of being um, restrained by a kind of duality between subject, uh, soul, and body. So that that there's, as I said, this opening of views to more plurality, more flexibility of views. So that one view is body and flesh has intelligence, intelligences has desire, has eros, has soul, has will. And the sense of the body, the experience, the perception, the concept can be expanded. We can discover more and more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.